Well, at this time, I would ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church, chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For He has put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him that God may be all in all. Amen. Let's also read from 2 Timothy 3, 1-9. Paul's second epistle to Timothy, chapter 3, the first nine verses. Once again, let's hear God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was." May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's focus our attention on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and especially uh, from that selection that we read, verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now we've spent a number of sermons thus far in our series addressing the biblical outlook on the future, on the progress of the new covenant period leading up to the second coming of Christ. And We've said that uh, in this new covenant period, as the gospel goes forth and the Great Commission uh, is sent out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, and Christ is present discipling the nations, that we ought to have a healthy measure of optimism. 
in terms of the progress of the gospel and the fulfillment of that great commission in the discipleship of the nations of this world. And we've looked at numerous books of the Bible uh, from Genesis to the book of Psalms. Uh, I think we had multiple sermons on Isaiah. We looked at the book of Daniel. And we saw again and again these very explicit prophecies that the nations of this world, in fact all nations, will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. Uh, Just uh, one example, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, which we said is the new covenant period, the last major phase before the final judgment, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's the kingdom of God, the church, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And notice the people that he's rebuking. Notice the fruit of that effectual rebuke. It's more than just a few scattered uh, believers forming a tiny righteous remnant, but they shall beat their swords. In other words, the nations that he's judging between and rebuking. The nations and peoples shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is an advance of the gospel that has global ramifications. And so much more could be said. You can go back online and listen to those messages. But as we've gotten into the New Testament, we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospels reiterates those promises. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, We've seen that the Lord Jesus uh, prophesies the advance of His kingdom through parables saying that the tiny seed of the kingdom will become a great and mighty tree. That the kingdom of heaven will be like leaven that leavens the whole lump. And we've seen that the apostles took this message and ran with it. Paul in Romans chapter 11 proclaims to us hope of life from the dead for the world. When the Jews are regrafted into the olive tree of God's professing church and the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in quoting that, uh, in, in making that statement, Paul is actually quoting from a passage that we looked at in our Isaiah sermons, Isaiah 59. Uh, The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. So he, Paul uses this to reinforce this hope of the mass, massive uh, global conversion of the Jews and the Gentiles. But notice the verse just prior to that in the context of Isaiah 59. Uh, Paul uses verse 20 to speak of the ingathering of the Jews, but Paul also alludes to the ingathering of the Gentiles, and notice what Isaiah says in the previous verse. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So you can see in the context of the Jews being regrafted, the Redeemer coming to Zion, you also have the fullness of the Gentiles. Life from the dead for the world. However, there are many objections to this teaching. There are biblical Christians who look at the evidence and who know their Bible and who consider this teaching that we've been meditating upon this aspect of what we believe the Bible is is proclaiming to us, and they have objections. And oftentimes their objections are drawn from the New Testament epistles. And we have to take stock of this. First of all, we have to give thanks to God for objections. You see, objections are very important. It means people are thinking. I mean, at least the kind of objections we're dealing with tonight. I know there can be ridiculous objections that people have, 
but there are legitimate questions and objections that people have that reflect the fact that they're Bereans, that they're searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so, and they're not just going to buy into something hook, line, and sinker because a preacher wearing a tie in a pulpit said so. And so we give thanks for these types of objections that we're going to consider this evening. And again, we place this sermon in the series within the context of Paul's epistles where we find ourselves because most and and many of the objections of this sort come from those who are focused on Paul's epistles, focused on the apostolic letters, and, and rightly so. We ought to be focused on these letters. And with that in mind, let's dive in and consider some of the objections to the teaching that we've been considering for uh, a number of weeks now. First objection to this notion that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. The first objection is very simple, and it is this, that people say there's a lack of apostolic support. You read the letters, the epistles of the apostles, and you don't see them making the same kinds of statements that we seem to be drawing from the Old Testament prophetic books or from the Gospels. And they say, you see, this is evidence you haven't, un- you haven't properly understood the prophets, you haven't properly understood the Gospels, because these authoritative apostolic teachers aren't bringing out these themes of Gospel optimism in the way that you are, they say. Uh, they're focused more on tribulation, persecution, and, and themes of Christian suffering and taking up our cross and things of this sort. Uh, but the fact is, we've seen so far that in Romans 11, Paul expounds this optimistic gospel hope. Paul looked at a world that was decaying in perversion and wickedness among the Gentiles, in hypocrisy among the Jews, and unbelief across the board. And Paul was able to see hope of the regrafting of the Jews into the olive tree, of life from the dead for the Gentile nations of the world. Paul had an optimistic gospel hope based upon the prophecies in the Old Testament, based upon what we sing about in the Psalms, based upon the statements of the Lord Jesus Christ, and based upon His own revelation by the Holy Spirit, He proclaims that, in fact, all Israel will be saved and the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. But we see it also in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's main focus, of course, is defending the physical resurrection of believers at the last day and emphasizing the connection between Christ's resurrection and the believer's guaranteed resurrection at the last day. And in the context of this, he sets forth something of a timetable or a timeline of events toward the end of the world. You'll notice he says, verse 24 of the passage we read, then comes the end when he delivers, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he and and our translation is not quite as helpful here, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. See, this translation makes it sound as if He doesn't put an end to all rule and authority and power. In other words, to His enemies. He doesn't put an end to them till the very end. But the fact is that uh, the authorized version is more helpful here. In the Greek, it's when He shall have put an end to all rule and authority and power. In other words, when He returns, He delivers up the kingdom as it's been perfected. He has built His church. He has defeated His enemies in history. And now at the last day, He delivers up that kingdom. He has already put an end to all rule and authority and power providentially and through His Gospel. He shall have already done that. And then He delivers it up. Notice, it's confirmed by the way Paul speaks here. Verse 25, For He must reign, that is at God's right hand. He's appealing to Psalm 110, verse 1. Jehovah said to my Lord, David's saying, okay, Jehovah, God the Father, said to my Lord, meaning the Messiah, God the Father said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
So Paul is asserting that Christ is going to continue to reign at God's right hand until His enemies are made a footstool. It's not His leaving of the right hand that makes the enemies of the footstool at His return, but He's going to remain at the right hand until His enemies are made a footstool, and then He's going to return. Again, for He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. In other words, He's putting them under His feet while He's reigning at the right hand of God. Not, well, they're, they're running amok and then He saves the day uh, at the last minute with a buzzer-beater victory against the kingdom of darkness. That's not what Paul is saying. When He shall have already done it, He'll reign until that point and then He'll return and consummate His victory. And this is clear from the next verse, verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's actually the death blow to the view that says that it's Christ's return that will bring this substantial victory. That, that all these prophecies of triumph and of victory and conquest of, over Christ's enemies and the prophecies of them being placed under His feet that, that all of this, people say, well, it's just His return. When He returns, that's the victory that's spoken of. But the fact of the matter is, death is the last enemy that will be defeated. If you think about that, it means that all the other enemies are going to be defeated prior to the resurrection from the dead. Because what is it that defeats death? It's Christ's second coming which raises the dead. Which means His enemies the rule and authority and power of Satan's kingdom, the stranglehold of Satan's power on the earth, must have received a, a, a victory, a, a death blow from the hand of Christ prior to the final defeat of death at the resurrection. So this victory over Christ's enemies doesn't come after the resurrection. It comes before the resurrection. And so death is the last enemy to be defeated. But if these enemies of Satan's kingdom are defeated after Christ returns in the new heaven and the new earth, you see that actually death isn't the last enemy to be defeated. So Paul gives us a timeline here that precludes and prohibits any notion of these glorious gospel blessings taking place after the second coming. No, they take place through the Great Commission. And it's Christ at the second coming who consummates and brings to really full fruition and completion that victory which he's already achieved through the sword that proceeds out of his mouth through the gospel of the kingdom and so again verse 27 for he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are put under him it is evident uh, that uh, essentially christ as the god man will eventually offer it up to god the father so Psalm 110, Paul understands as a gospel victory prior to the final resurrection from the dead. And this is then brought out as well in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where I think we can say Paul wrote the epistle to Hebrews. That's where I stand anyway. But the author here expounds this more. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, quoting Psalm 8. And Psalm 110, kind of a, a mixture of various quotations throughout this epistle of all things being put under Christ's feet. Uh, this time Psalm 8, and, and he says this, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So it's saying Christ has full authority, but we don't see that full-fledged authority of the second Adam, of the King of Kings. We don't see it fully manifested, but we see Jesus. And, and, and He builds on this further. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. Where He says, but this man, after he had offered once, uh, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. 
So it's saying Christ has all power and authority in heaven and earth. He says that before His ascension, Matthew 28. He's made head over all things for the church. And yet, not all things are visibly placed under His feet. You see Satan's kingdom running rampant on the earth. But we see Jesus. We know He's ruling and reigning. And what is He doing? He's waiting. He's actively anticipating this gradual gospel victory over His enemies, waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. And, and that's Paul's timeline. So the apostles absolutely do make reference to this gospel optimism. They say that Satan's kingdom will be defeated through the gospel. The Jews will be brought in, the fullness of the Gentiles, and then the last enemy death is defeated at the second coming. That's the apostolic support for this doctrine. The second objection is people say, what about those pessimistic passages? What about those pessimistic passages, especially in the epistles, similar to the, you know, the, the, verse, the verses that we read from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, that would be one of the main ones that people cite, and they say, how do you reconcile the Apostle Paul's seemingly pessimistic view of the end times He's speaking here of the last days and he doesn't say glorious days of gospel blessing and and all nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares and the kingdom of God and the knowledge of Christ will be across the earth as the waters cover the seas. Where's that optimism? The Apostle Paul seems to be very pessimistic about the last days and they make this argument as if we've never heard it, but we have and we have a response. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, actually demonstrates the great confidence and optimism that the Apostle Paul had for the power of the gospel to defeat these uh, movements and trends and trajectories of evil in the world. Let's look at the passage. Verse 1, but know this, that in the last days... Now, Let's recognize that the phrase the last days does not mean what the end times fiction authors would have us to think that it means. It doesn't mean what all the apocalyptic YouTubers think that it means. Biblically speaking, this phrase the last days has reference to the new covenant period. Not to the tail end of the New Covenant period, but to the entire period from Christ's ascension to His second coming. And we can see this quite clearly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, goes on to say that He is seated at God's right hand. Now, that's the last days from Christ's ascension at the right hand until His second coming. Those are the last days. The last days does not refer to the tail end of history. And so we think, oh, things are getting bad in our day. It must be the last days. But biblically, the last days are the last major period, meaning the entire new covenant age. Again, the apostles speak of their own day as the last days. So keeping that in mind, he says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times, stressful times, times of tribulation and anguish. But here's the thing. The word times here is elsewhere frequently translated as seasons. So within the new covenant period as a whole, these last times, these last days, will come perilous seasons. And that's what the word means. It means it's referring to the ebb and the flow. We think of the seasons of the year. Winter, spring, summer, fall. We, we come to church. I don't know what the temperature is, but it feels like, what, like 10, 15, 20 degrees? Very cold outside. And uh, the roads are icy. And we're in a season of cold. But give it a number of months and it'll be 90 degrees outside. Okay, And so you would be foolish to just show up in southeast Michigan 
for a few weeks and assume that it's 10 or 15 or 20 degrees all year long. No, there are cold seasons, seasons of coldness, times of coldness throughout every year. And throughout the New Covenant period, there will be perilous seasons. And Paul is making reference to this, that there will be times in world history on a macro scale, but especially times in the history of various cultures and nations where different cultures and different nations and different civilizations are at a different season. I mean, right now, you can go to some parts of the world and uh, it's it's hot outside, uh, but it's cold here. So different cultures, different nations, different civilizations are going through different ethical and spiritual seasons. And there's ethical and spiritual climate change, we could say. And these things, these cycles are constantly happening. And Paul is pointing out that in any given civilization, we need to beware during this new covenant period that there will be cycles where things get worse and worse and so debased that you can't even believe what you're seeing marching down the street. And it's overwhelming. But he says, don't worry, these things will happen. There will be these seasons. And no doubt, in Western society and civilization, we find ourselves in a perilous season. And we can see that on on a, a micro scale, in the short term, that things are getting worse and worse and worse. Now, that does not mean that it's the end of the world. But it does mean that we're coming to the end, in a sense, of Western civilization as we know it. That things are taking a spiritual nosedive. And perilous seasons have come. And we see signs of these perilous seasons. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud. You can go through the list. We spent a ton of time on this stuff when we did Romans 1 uh, not too long ago. And all of these marks of a decaying, perverse civilization such as we find ourselves in. And so, there's a sense in which we ought not to be optimistic in the short term about our own society and our own civilization. We ought not to be triumphalistic and foolish and just assume everything's going to get better and just get the right person in the White House and we'll make America great again. No, no, that's not the mindset that Paul says we ought to have in the short term with respect to our civilization. But understand, he's just speaking of seasons that come and go, not of the full orb trajectory of the entire uh, world timeline of history. Uh, His pessimism is limited to these seasons that are marked by these kinds of sins. It's also important to recognize that Paul's very optimistic that these seasons will run their course and will not accomplish anywhere near what they're seeking to accomplish. Notice verse 8, he makes reference to the uh, Egyptian uh, magicians that resisted Moses, uh, and there's some extra-biblical literature he's alluding to here, but essentially those uh, men who opposed Moses, he says, uh, now as they resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Notice he, he's, he's referring to things in his own day. He's saying, these people, they're here. There's, a, there's something of a season of wickedness even there in the first century that they're experiencing. Uh, He says, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, and they're going to have a heyday, and they're going to be victorious, and God's church is going to be, you know, uh, hidden in some cave when Christ returns. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. But they will progress no further. In other words, no further than that seasonal decline. They will progress no further. In other words, it's really cold outside right now, and you'd better put a coat on, um, unlike me tonight, but I live next door, so it's okay. But the point is, prepare for the the, the cold weather uh, to hit you hard. But I don't think we need to worry necessarily that it's going to go 50 below zero, and the whole society, you know, we're going to turn into an iceberg or something like that. It's not going to proceed further than the range of coldness within this season. And the same is true of these perilous times. They're going to wreak havoc, but they're not going to proceed any further than the the seasonal decline in the providence of God. 
they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So it's saying things are going to get so ridiculously wicked and unnatural and foolish that even unconverted people are going to begin waking up and saying, this is craziness. When you oppose traditional biblical values and beliefs, you end up with utter insanity, utter folly. And it will begin waking people up and it will provide something to hinder the progress of that spiritual ethical declension. So that's something that we can be thankful for, that God's build, built in uh, a brake pedal to these perilous times. But also, that I think what he's saying is that the power of the Word of God will have victory as well. But you see, he's very optimistic that these seasons of sin are not going to proceed as far as people might think they would. Now, there are some other pessimistic passages. You can look at Luke chapter 18, verse 18, where the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing the need to be persistent in prayer. The parable of the persistent or importunate widow uh, who went to the unjust judge and kept crying out daily for justice, and eventually he granted her justice. And, and the Lord Jesus says that we ought to be persistent, and how much more optimistic and hopeful we should be in that we're persistently seeking the vindication of a just judge, the just judge of all the earth. And so all the more we should be persistent in prayer. And when we are, he says, verse 8, I tell you that God will avenge them speedily. So if we pray diligently and persistently, God will vindicate us. God will answer. God will help us. And that's a great encouragement. But then he goes on, he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he indeed find faith on the earth? And people say, you see, when the Son of Man comes, the world will be frozen over with unbelief. And given the unbelief we see in the world today, if we look at it from our day, and then we look at this very pessimistic outlook of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps they would say, you, you look at that uh, prophecy here, that, that prognostication, that uh, will there even be any faith on the earth when Christ returns? And you say, you see, it, it's going to go from here to here. It's going to go from bad to worse. It's going to go from a world that's rampant with unbelief to a world that you can scarcely find any believers at all. And it's important here, before we interpret this text in its own right, to recognize that we need to do our theology not based on a single verse of the Bible, but looking at each verse in the context of the entire biblical teaching. And so you can look at a verse like this and you say, well, Jesus has a very negative, pessimistic outlook. Will there even be any believers when He returns? Uh, but given the mountain of evidence for this gospel optimism that we've seen throughout the Bible, we need to take that into account as well and, and allow the whole Bible to interpret itself. Now, what Jesus is saying here when He's encouraging persistent prayer and saying that God will avenge speedily when we persistently seek Him, he's, he's adding a qualifier to essentially say that people are not diligently seeking God the way they should. What He's doing is responding to the person who would say, well, if, if persistently seeking God means that uh, wrongs are going to be avenged. Well, then look at the world. Look at all the wrongs done to God's people. Look at all the injustice against humanity. I mean, uh, where's God in all that? And I think what Jesus is saying here is uh, there are very few people actually taking God up on this offer. Uh, there, the question is not whether God will fulfill His end of the bargain and avenge and vindicate these persistent prayer warriors the real question is, will there be persistent prayer warriors seeking His face in faith? In other words, the, the, uh, the uncertainty is not on God's side. He will avenge those who seek His face. The question is, uh, are there people seeking His face? And, and when He returns, 
at the final judgment. Will there be people seeking His face then? And he does seem to imply that at the moment when he does return and bring an answer to the prayers of his people with final justice, final vindication, when he returns in power and might to judge the living and the dead as the fulfillment of of those prayers throughout throughout history, at least as one, one aspect of that fulfillment, that there will be a problem of unbelief on the earth. And there's no question that the Bible teaches that at the moment that Christ returns, there in fact will be rampant unbelief. But you see, if you look at the the biblical timeline, it's not as though we go from the unbelief we see today to the unbelief Jesus speaks of in this passage as if it just goes from bad to worse. The biblical pattern is actually that it goes from bad to much better And then at the very end, Satan is unleashed from the pit of hell, as it were, and things get really bad really fast at the very end. And uh, Lord willing, next time we'll be considering something of a survey of this subject from the book of Revelation in in our, hopefully, our final sermon in this series. But Revelation 20 describes it where in, in the opening verses of this chapter, It describes Satan being bound so that the gospel can go forth in great power and accomplish all these great exploits and triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. But then we're told, verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, uh, I would hope we would all agree that that has not happened yet. I think we would all agree on that. Uh, that whatever we think of the thousand years, they're certainly not over. We can debate whether they've started or not, but none of us would believe that the thousand years is over and that Satan is now released from prison, whatever that means, and that he's now going about deceiving the nations, whatever that means. We don't believe that on either side of the debate, we don't believe that that's currently happening. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, there's coming a day when Satan will be released and he'll go out and deceive those nations that have been discipled. The fullness of the Gentiles, the ingathered Jews. He'll go out and deceive those nations we we spoke about in Isaiah chapter 2 who beat their swords into plowshares. And there's coming a day when he he will attack that glorious gospel church which has so greatly illuminated the world through the Great Commission, and He will then deceive those nations and gather them against Christ and His people. And it's at that point that Christ returns with fire from heaven. So yes, it is the case that when the Son of Man returns, there will be rampant apostasy and unbelief. But we we can't ignore the middle phase in between now and Christ's second coming, which is the worldwide expansion of the gospel, and then Satan being loosed to bring worldwide apostasy. These two steps have yet to come. And so, yes, at the very end, there will be great unbelief, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't negate what we're teaching here. Other people will say, well, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, few find the narrow way. Few find the narrow way. And therefore, we should expect that in every age of the New Covenant period, every age and generation, that there will be very few Christians. And that there will be very few faithful Christians. And these kinds of things. But recognize that's a relative term. Few will find it. I mean, Matthew 20, verse 28, tells us that Jesus came to be a ransom for many. So which is it? Are few saved or are many saved? The fact of the matter is, these are relative terms that don't speak to every single aspect of the New Covenant age. They're general observations, few, many. It depends what angle or what aspect that you're comparing or contrasting. Uh, the, the, The fact is, the passages we've looked at show that, as in Daniel, Christ will rule in such a way that His kingdom will grow and expand and defeat and consume all other kingdoms. 
it'll be like leaven, leavening the lump. And so these pessimistic, so-called pessimistic passages fail to disprove or to negate the evidence that we've presented. Thirdly, uh, folks will say that the New Testament emphasizes suffering And so the discipleship of all nations, the Christianization of all the nations of the world is inconsistent with the notion, as Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, this notion that part of the Christian life is the endurance of persecution and suffering. Um, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you, you could say, well, see, that's inconsistent. Because if the nations converted, and let's say they were all Reformed Presbyterian. Uh, let's just say, all the nations became Reformed Presbyterians. Um, I'm not suggesting exactly that that's the case, but let's just take it that way. Uh, then there would be no persecution whatsoever. Well, it's true that there wouldn't be uh, persecution at a national level. There wouldn't be people dying for their faith. Uh, But then again, most of you here claim to be desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and you've never been threatened with death for your faith. Does that mean you're not a true Christian? Uh, No, no, you you don't understand. You know, I, I, I face levels of persecution. People speak ill of me, or people look down on me because I'm a Christian, See, there's the point. You can have Christian nations. They could all be Reformed Presbyterians. But I can tell you, uh, if you spend time in, in the Reformed Presbyterian church, you might find people saying things about you because you did the right thing. It's an imperfect church on earth, even if the whole world was covered with faithful Christian churches and every nation professed to be Christian that would not remove sin and it would not remove people saying negative things about you for doing the right thing. In fact, Jesus speaks of this, the the sort of persecution that in some sense every Christian ought to expect, even if you're living in a covenanted Christian nation. Matthew 5, 11, "Blessed blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some of those prophets were in covenanted uh, biblical nations, the nation of Judah, during Hezekiah's reign or Josiah's reign. The fact of the matter is, there can still be negative consequences for obeying God even if you're in a Christian nation, and even if your nation has been discipled by the gospel. So, uh, again, the emphasis on suffering and persecution is in no way inconsistent with the discipleship of the nations. And in fact, the suffering that God's people endure is not for its own sake, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so, we can be confident as we face persecution and opposition and violence or even just more mild forms of persecution, as Jesus speaks of, we can be confident that we're facing these things victoriously and that we will be vindicated through the power of the gospel discipling the nation. So Christian suffering actually flows into the Christian triumph and victory because we have victory over the devil, Revelation says, by through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony Uh, not loving our lives, even to the death. So our suffering is pursuant to our victory. Fourth objection, people say, well, if you're expecting a great discipleship of the nations to happen prior to the return of Christ, that's inconsistent with the notion of Christ's imminent return. They say, Jesus could return at any moment. And they say, this is what the Bible teaches. He's coming quickly. He's coming soon. The Bible teaches Jesus could return at any moment. That The apostles believed that He could return at any moment. Uh, we could refer to this as the perpetual imminency of the return of Christ. And th- there are some problems with this, even in terms of the way that it's conceptualized. Because did the apostles believe that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime? 
And did they teach that? Well, if they taught it, they were wrong because he didn't. So, so you get into real trouble teaching that the apostles actually were teaching that Jesus is going to return in our lifetimes. Because if they were saying that in terms of the second coming, then they were false teachers because he didn't come. He hasn't come for 2,000 years. And in fact, if you look carefully in the New Testament, you find that the apostles absolutely did not believe that Jesus could come in two seconds. Because the apostles predicted numerous events that would happen prior to the second coming. And they expected those events to happen prior to the second coming. And they were, those were not the type of events that would happen in two or three seconds. For instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be so, excuse me, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And a better translation there is as though the day of Christ were at hand. So Paul is actually saying, if there are people telling you that the day of Christ is about to happen, verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So he goes on to say there's this anti-Christian figure, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, who's going to lead a massive apostasy against the gospel within the Christian church, claiming divine prerogatives, sitting in the temple of God, the church, and leading people astray with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So the message of salvation, the truth that saves, is going to be abandoned by this megalomaniacal anti-Christian figure who leads an apostasy. And Paul says, until this man of sin arises, his rise, his progress... His fall through the breath of Christ's mouth, meaning the preaching of the Word, and ultimately, as with all the enemies of Christ, at the last day, the appearance of His coming. He says, until these events, this rise and progress and fall of the man of lawlessness takes place, that day will not come. Now, did Paul live his life looking up into the clouds, thinking that the rise and progress and fall of the man of sin was going to happen in 30 seconds and Jesus was going to return? Clearly, that's impossible. It's impossible to conceive with any degree of rationality that Paul would say this and that he would also expect that Jesus could return in 30 seconds. It's utterly incompatible. So clearly, when Paul and the apostles speak of the nearness of Christ's coming, that it's nearer than when you first believed, and that it'll come quickly, and that we ought to be ready for it, what they're emphasizing is not that all these prophetic events are going to happen in 30 seconds, some sort of token timeline in biblical eschatology, but what they're saying is, number one, when you die, your eternal destiny is set before the second coming. So you need to be ready for your death. You need to be ready for the final judgment that judges your life. And you need to realize that with each tick of the clock, it's nearer and nearer and nearer than when you first believed. But not to think that it's at hand in the sense that all these biblical prophecies don't have to happen first. No, they have to happen first. And Paul's worried that people are going to be teaching this perpetual imminency of Christ's return before Christ actually does everything that Christ said He was going to do before He returns. Uh, We saw this in Matthew 24, verse 14, where Jesus Himself says that before the end comes, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed among all nations to the ends of the earth. Among all nations. And the fact is, Not all ethnicities have heard the gospel. We've got thousands of unreached people groups yet to go. So again, you can't say Jesus could return in 30 seconds if there's a whole lot more biblical prophetic uh, uh, material that has yet 
to take place. Christ will return, but He'll return once He's finished the job that He's said that He was going to finish in history. And this is an important thing because in 2 Peter 3, well, a couple things in 2 Peter. First of all, 2 Peter 1, 14 and 15, Peter clearly did not believe in the imminent return of Christ because he speaks to his audience and he says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So he's saying, I'm about to die. Now he doesn't say, unless the Lord returns first. He knows that he's going to die because in John 21, Jesus predicted that he would be martyred. Remember, Peter looked at John the Apostle and he looked at Jesus and he said, what about this man? Right? Remember that? So um, we had a sermon on that uh, not too long ago. But Peter knew that he was going to die because Jesus had prophesied that he would die. So Peter's theological outlook on the second coming is we can expect the second coming to happen after all the things that the Bible predicts were going to happen have happened and then comes the end. And so in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, as he's addressing the second coming, notice he says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He's quoting Psalm 90. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, we, we can wrangle around about the meaning of that last reference there to all coming to repentance, but the point is, Christ is going to accomplish all of His purposes in saving all of His elect and building His church and accomplishing all of these prophecies prior to His return. And if it seems like we read the New Testament... And it seems like, well, his return is going to come at any moment. And Peter says, well, it hasn't come. And there's all these other events that have to happen first. And you might say, well, that that doesn't make sense. Is is the Lord slack concerning his promise? Peter's saying, stop judging God by your timetable and respect God's timetable. Respect God's timetable of bringing his elect to repentance and respect God's timetable when he says it's near and it's closer and closer and it's coming respect that inspired timetable that it's according to God and not yourself. And 2,000 years have gone by. And clearly, soon and quickly can't mean right away because 2,000 years have gone by. So we've learned from experience what Peter proclaims in the first century. Uh, So much more could be said. I mean, if you look at Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus addresses the second coming you'll find that on multiple occasions, Jesus in the parables about His return speaks of a delay. A delay. A perceived delay in His coming. Matthew 24, 48. Matthew 25, verse 5. Matthew 25, verse 19. So it's nearer and nearer and nearer than when we first believed, but at the same time, we feel as though we have to be patient and we're waiting and when is this coming? And there's, a, there, there's this tension. Uh, James 5 verse 8 gives us this tension that we need to recognize. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he's saying, be patient, but it's at hand. This is the tension of the New Testament. Be eager. Be, anticip- be anticipating it. Be looking for it. Be preparing for that judgment. Be ready for it. But also you're going to have to be patient because there's a whole lot of prophetic fulfillment that has yet to come. Uh, This is the teaching of the New Testament. And uh, I would argue that uh, nobody consistently holds to the perpetual imminency of Christ's return unless they hold that Satan's loosing at the end of the thousand years has already happened. Remember, We said in Revelation 27 and following that after the thousand years, Satan is loosed to run amok and deceive the nations. And as far as I know, the people who try to, you know, present the pessimistic outlook 
all believe that we're still in the thousand years and Satan has not yet been loosed. And so you would have to hold, if Christ could return in five seconds, you would have to hold that Satan has now been loosed and he's deceived the nations. See, there's a whole period after the thousand years before Christ returns with fire from heaven. What do you do with Revelation 20 verses 7 and following? Uh, so, so there's a problem there to say Christ is going to return in five seconds, but Satan hasn't yet been loosed. That's not going to take only five seconds, my friends. Those verses are going to take time to fulfill. Uh, one last objection, and, and then we'll, we'll close our, our message. But uh, people have a, what's called a post-consummation hermeneutic. That's a fancy way of saying they take these prophecies of global gospel optimism and they put them in, into the eternal state. They say the nations turning to the Lord, the nations worshiping before Him, that's referring to after Christ returns in the new heaven and the new earth. And so they say it's after the consummation, after the second coming, and these prophecies will then be fulfilled in heaven. Uh, so there will be global dominion after the second coming, heaven on earth. There are two very brief problems with this. We looked at the first problem several weeks ago when we considered in our Roman series the glorious habitation or residence of God's people in eternity. We considered that although there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're not saying the, the cosmos will be annihilated, we're saying it'll be renewed, but it'll be renewed not just on earth, not just in the, the, the first heavens of the sky and the second heavens of the uh, galaxies, but the third heavens. Jesus is presently renewing it. He's preparing a place for us in the Father's house in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, the house made without hands eternal in the heavens. And so the portion of God's creation that will be our primary residence in heaven will be heaven, not the earth. And so it, it really cuts at the heart of this idea that these, description of, these descriptions of earthly nations turning to the Lord are somehow a description of heaven. It can't be the case if you take the, the biblical data as we presented it several weeks ago. But really, even the, a stronger objection here is this, that the language of these prophecies are such that they could not possibly be fulfilled in heaven. Uh, I've already dealt with this in, in our sermon, uh, sermon on the Psalms, so I'm just going to use one example one example of this uh, to, to, to bring home this point. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Okay? The word turn there is shuv, repent. It means repent. There will be no repentance after Jesus returns. The saints won't need to repent and the damned won't have any opportunity to repent nor the power to repent. And this is one of many passages. We looked at them. We're not going to rehash it and go back and listen to those sermons. But time and time again, the prophetic passages which speak of this optimism speak of all nations turning and repenting. And the ones that are rebuked are the ones that are repenting and obeying and turning their swords into plowshares. So this massive global repentance cannot possibly occur after Christ returns. This life from the dead for the world, there's not going to be life from the dead, revival, regeneration after the second coming. These are things that only have significance in the day and age of salvation and of the bringing home of God's elect. So there you have responses to these objections and we simply then wait for our last message on the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for your word that it is true, that it is clear, and yet we find that not all portions of it are equally clear, and so we need your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and clarity to compare Scripture with Scripture so that your word itself would be its own infallible interpreter. We pray that you would enable us uh, to have that properly functioning theological immune system 
that does raise objections and does filter and sift through and evaluate ideas with discernment. We pray that you would anoint us with your spirit uh, to discern truth from error, righteousness from unrighteousness, that our outlook on history would be the outlook that is presented in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.